Well, open up your Bibles this morning uh, to Matthew chapter 2. So we have one more quote-unquote Christmas story that we're going to look at uh, before we go back in time to Isaiah next week. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into that. But before we do that, we're going to look at uh, Matthew 2, uh, chapter, or verses 1 through 13, <clears throat> in a message entitled Epiphany. Epiphany means, or one of the meanings that I'm going to use this morning, is a manifestation or an ex- appearance of the divine. And if you know the story that we're going to look at this morning, uh, this is the manifestation or the epiphany of Jesus in the flesh. So Epiphany, if you didn't know, is celebrated. It's an actual celebration that is going on right now in a lot of the Western churches and Eastern churches, more denominational, uh, what they might call like high church, um, around the world today. Tomorrow is actually the Epiphany, uh, which represents the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Magi, Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it's a manifestation of Jesus Christ not only to his own people, but to the Gentiles. And that's who the Magi represent in the story, are God coming to all people, not just to Jews, but also to the Gentile. What I like about Epiphany, because those of you that know me really well, you know I love Christmas. And Epiphany actually signals the end of Christmas, so it is still Christmas. So for all you that tore down your decorations, shame on, no, I'm just kidding. I tried to tell my wife, we have to keep it up till Epiphany. And she's like, no, we don't. As soon as she felt better, she was tearing down Christmas. So, and that, so actually tomorrow, I think some of you, there's some of you that still have Christmas decorations up. The real Christians right there, you two. <laughs> Keeping it up till Epiphany. Amen. So we're all coming to your house to celebrate the Epiphany feast. You know what, as I was studying it, I, I wish I would have found out what country it is. They say in South America, in one of the celebrations, it's actually the Magi that bring the gifts to the children. So they kick Santa Claus out, and I like that. I'm like, all right, I think that's kind of biblical. And so the Magi are the ones that bring the gift. So uh, as I had already mentioned, Epiphany, the reason I'm going through this this morning is, is why is Epiphany associated with the visit of the Magi? It's because in Matthew's gospel, that we'll see, is he's presenting the revelation of God to the Gentiles. And so that's how it's all tied together. He's showing that the Messiah was not just coming to the Jews, although he came to the Jews first, but he's also coming to the Gentile world. And Matthew is highlighting, which we'll see as we read through it, that the Messiah, as you know, is rejected by his very own people and then embraced by the Gentile world. So this morning, as we examine the text, uh, we're going to see three different responses to the epiphany or to the birth or manifestation of the Messiah to the world. So if you're taking notes, these are the the three things that you definitely want to notice. And in these three responses, we'll find out this morning that I gather you and I can find ourselves making similar responses to the manifestation of Jesus Christ when he's revealed to us. And those three things are this. Number one, indifference. You're going to see is one of the responses by those in the story is they are indifferent to the epiphany or manifestation of Jesus. Number two, there is going to be a hostility or hatred toward the manifestation of Jesus. 
And thirdly and lastly, there are those who are going to worship Jesus when he is manifested. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the text. And then I'll come back and highlight these three things in the responses that we see. So Matthew chapter 2 reads this way. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is, what was be, this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully um, for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which had been seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, <clears throat> and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And so there we have Matthew's account of the epiphany of Jesus. And so as I said, we're going to look at the three responses within that story, and I'm not going to go in chronological order. I'm going to touch on them, as I mentioned earlier, in regards to indifference, hatred, and our hostility, and then the worship of Jesus. So uh, let's look at these three, man these three responses. And the first one that we're going to look at is the indifference of the religious leaders to the manifestation of Jesus Christ. So they pay, in this story, they pay little attention to this news that the Savior that they've been waiting for, that they know about, has come. They pay little attention to that. I mean, they don't, they're not shown going with the Magi, right? They don't need to uh, follow the star themselves. They said they know where he was born. They could have easily got up and went out with the Magi to receive their king. But, but they didn't, or at least we're not shown that. And they don't go with them. They don't talk to the Magi at all about uh, this thing that they have seen. And they show no excitement about it. They're not even interested in this event that has happened. They're totally indifferent. So the question of his birth to them is more of an academic exercise. They know the scriptures. They know about the Savior. They know about God, but they don't 
know God. You see the distinction? They know about him. They intellectually understand what's happening or, or what's being asked. They even know what the scripture says, but they care nothing about going to see if it is really true. Again, they know about God, but they don't know him. And this was a constant accusation against the religious leaders throughout the Gospels, if you're familiar with them. Jesus is constantly telling them this very thing. A matter of fact, if you turn to Mark chapter 7, I just wanted to show you this uh, in one of the Gospels, looking at verses 5 and 8, this is one of those examples where Jesus is responding to the religious leaders who were, who were more focused on man-made religious purity laws than actually the heart of the law. And so what we have here is that Jesus is out with the disciples, and the disciples, they don't wash their hands in the religious ceremonial way before they eat. And so the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they call them out for this. It says that the Pharisees inscribed, asking, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? but eat their bread with impure hands. And he said to them, so again, they're being accused of not following religious purity laws. Like, hey, good believers, they don't do that type of thing. They wash their hands you know, in this special way before they eat. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. You hear that accusation? They're more worried about the outward appearance of religion than actually really understanding and following what God says. So they have that outward appearance and nothing really on the inside. And again, that is a, this is a constant accusation against the religious leaders of that time. And so they are pretty much indifferent that Matthew is telling us here. And again, this is what we see in the text. So for us, I want to say this, that this is an, a consistent accusation that preachers need to present to all of us in the church today. Right? This needs to be a consistent accusation for us to inspect ourselves, our own relationship or lack of it with the Savior that we're here worshiping this morning. Right? Throughout the church, I think we as preachers need to present this before you as a congregation. Uh, and it's not the first time that it's happened, which I'll show you in a moment, that this is being done. And I want to make this distinction. I think this is a very important, so I'm going to spend a little time on this, because I want us all to pay attention to this, because this is an attitude, this indifference to God that infects those people that attend church. You and me, people can sit through church, go through the religious practice of worshiping and tithing and, and, and sitting here listening to a Bible study and really care nothing about the God who it's about. They go through all the religious practice, and, and we can be guilty of that, right? We can be outward, outwardly religious, outwardly religious, but inside we don't really know anything about Jesus. It's an academic thing. And as I mentioned, this is an accusation that is levied against the church. If you turn to the book of Hebrews and look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, 
uh, the author of Hebrews is asking the church that he's writing to to actually think about this. He says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So he's talking to a people that call themselves believers. He doesn't know who the believers are in the church. And he wants them to be aware of that, of this very fact. Again, he says, none of, he, he goes, brothers and sisters, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And I ask this morning that each and every one of you do that yourselves. Even though you've been sitting in church for who knows how long, check your hearts. He says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This is a very real thing within the church. You can sit in church and really know nothing personally in a relationship about the God that you are here today hearing about. You are deceived. Your heart becomes hardened the more and more that you hear the gospel presented and you do not respond to it. So again, he says today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have, become, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. He is warning the church, just like Jesus warned the religious leaders of the day, I, as your pastor, warn you today to check your hearts. Don't become indifferent to the gospel. Don't sit through church every week, even serve within the church, and become indifferent to the God whom you serve. Again, this is what we see the response to the manifestation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. And Jesus warned people about this often. Probably one of the most scariest things that he ever said was to those who have a false sense of religious belief, right? They go through the religious activities. Again, they even serve within the church. And look at what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. These are the words that none of us who proclaim to be Christians ever want to hear when we stand before the Lord. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. So here, the rebuttal to Jesus saying, don't you guys call me Lord, Lord, is like, hey, we did all these things for you. We preached the gospel for you. We played on the worship team for you. We prayed before the church before you. We served in children's ministry for you. And look at what Jesus says. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is because they're indifferent. They know about God, but they don't know him. This is a very real danger for those of you that have been brought up in the church all your life. I've gone to church all my life, but you don't really know God. It's just something you've done all your life, and you know that I'm supposed to be part of the church. So we have to be careful of that. And so I ask, knowing this indifference that's described here in Matthew, and again, to the manifestation of Christ, does that describe you? Can you look at your heart and go, you know what, I, I think that describes me. I'm indifferent. I've heard all the stories. I can 
I can quote Bible verses. You know, our culture is very knowledgeable about religion. And they're probably considered a relig- we're probably considered a very religious culture by other people outside the United States. But do we really know the God of our religion? Do we just know religion? And so I ask you this morning, does that describe you? I like what Pastor John MacArthur said about indifference. He says this, because some of us might think, hey, indifference isn't such a bad thing, right? I'm not, I don't hate God, right? He says this, indifference to God is simply hatred that is concealed and rejection that is delayed. Think about that. You really don't like God. It's, it's concealed in your religion. You're paying lip service to God. You're kind of, um, you know, kind of appeasing God with my religion, right? And when it comes down to it, one day you will probably actually reject him. Isn't this what the very leaders of the Jewish religion did in his day? They eventually shouted what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Their indifference was actually hatred concealed and rejection that was delayed. And so again, I ask you this morning, does that describe you? Has sin crept into your life so much that you are indifferent to God? So that's one response that we see to the epiphany of Christ. Let's look at the second one. The second one is hostility to Herod. And for the most of us, it's probably like, oh, that's probably not me, right? We're, you know, most people, if they really hate God, they're probably not in church this morning, unless you've been forced and dragged here for some reason. So in this hostility, as we think about Herod's response, let's go back to the text and look at, uh, just look at verse 3. It says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod, it says, was troubled by the news that a newborn, that a new king was born. Why is that? Well, if you know a little bit of the history of Herod, he didn't want a rival to his throne. Right? He was king, and nobody else was ever going to be king in his eyes. The thought of him losing control of what he had terrified him. So much so that he was willing to destroy people for it. It is said that Herod, out of envy, killed his own wife and his own two sons for fear that they would eventually usurp him or take his authority somehow. He killed his own family members. And as you know in this story, he is ultimately going to look for Jesus himself or try. to, And he wants to see him because he wants to kill him. We're told in the scripture. And in verse 16, it actually says, when he found out that he was deceived by the Magi, he had all children under the age of two, or boys, killed. So the thought of him losing control of what he thought he owned terrified him, right? He would destroy anyone who would take away his autonomy. Now think about that. Does that describe you in some way? That, you know, you're like, hey, I'm not giving my life up to nobody, I'm the one in control of my own life. And the thought of you giving your life away to Jesus Christ troubles you, terrifies you. And if you don't think you're hostile to Christ, you know, maybe you're, you're indifferent. But in actuality, before we became believers, Scripture tells us that we were hostile to God. 
In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the state of mankind before they give their life to Christ, before they experience salvation. We are hostile towards God. And we're enemies of God, some parts of Scripture says. And again, so I ask you, does this describe you? Are you troubled by the thought, again, of giving up control to God? The rich young ruler was. In the Gospels, we're told this rich young ruler says, I followed all the commandments perfectly since I was a child. I haven't sinned one bit. And what does Jesus tell him? Well, go and sell all that you own and follow me. And he's like, no, he didn't want to do that. He went away sad because the thought of giving up what was his made him sad. He didn't want to do it. And Jesus tells us in uh, Mark chapter 8, you can turn to Mark chapter 8, look at verse 35. He says, by us trying to hold on to everything for ourselves, like I'm holding on to my life, I'm not giving up, we actually are going to lose it in the end. He says in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? All those things, if this describes you this morning, that you are holding on to, that you refuse to give to God, will ultimately be your demise. You think you're in control of your life, but you're not. You think you can save yourself, but ultimately you cannot. You know, those of us that have grown older in life, we realize that we are not in control of our own destinies. We can barely control our own health, let alone everything else in the world. The fact that we woke up and are breathing and living this morning is an absolute miracle from God. That's the reality. And so I ask you again this morning to examine your heart and ask yourself, does that describe me? Am I hostile towards God? Do I refuse to give up my entire life to God because I'm in control of it? I, it troubles you to think that God wants your life. What is it going to do with your life? I promise you, if you give your life to the Lord, as he says, you will actually, you won't lose your life, you'll actually gain it. So that's the second response that we see in the text this morning. Again, there are those who are indifferent to the manifestation of Jesus, and then there are those who are hostile. So those are the two negative ones. And as I said, most of us, you know, if we're not believers, are probably most of in that first camp, we're indifferent to God by the fact that you being here. You know, I can go to church and hear about it, and that's nice. It doesn't mean anything, though, to you. It has no effect. And, and I pray this morning that I'm actually wrong, and all of us here this morning, if not at this moment, by the end of this sermon, we'll be in this third category, and this is the worshiping magi. So we don't respond with indifference or hatred, but we respond to the manifestation of Jesus Christ to our lives, to this world, by worshiping him like the Magi did. So the Magi in this story, we're told in the very beginning that they wanted to worship the king. That's the whole reason 
They came across, a, you know, a, lo- a large part of the wor- their world, their known world, to see the king. They wanted to worship him. They heard about his coming somehow, and so they came to see him, and they focused on finding him, didn't they? They stayed focused. They saw a sign, and they followed it. They came to a city to find out where this child was, and they traveled from afar to find it. And then they asked people, where is he who was born king of the Jews? They were focused on finding him. Not only did they want to worship him, they were focused on finding him. And once they found Jesus, we are told that they rejoiced greatly. They worshiped him and they presented their treasures to him. Again, they rejoiced when they found the place that he was at. They bowed down and bowed down and worshiped him, and then they opened up their treasures. And so just real quickly, again, on the Magi, they wanted to worship him, they focused on finding him, and they presented their treasures to him. And as you look at that list, I want you to ask yourselves this morning, does that describe your current experience with Christ? You may not be perfectly right, and we may not want to always do it all the time, but in general, you know, I'm not indifferent to Christ. I don't hate Christ. I want to worship Christ. Does that describe, again, your current experience? You want to worship him because he's your Messiah. He's been manifested to you as the Savior of the world, and you've embraced that. You've believed on him, and so you worship him out of thankfulness. You understand that, hey, I'm not worshiping God to earn his favor. I'm worshiping him to say thank you for what he's done. Secondly, your life is focused on finding him, just like the Magi. The Magi, you know, they dropped everything to find Jesus. And so maybe that's you, or you want it to be you. You are focused on finding Jesus. And when I say finding Jesus, I'm talking about growing in your relationship with him, growing in what's called uh, sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Because positionally, each and every one of us who has given ourselves to the Lord, we are already sanctified, sanctified set apart as holy. Just like this morning we were singing, you know, I lift my holy hands up. I don't know about you, but as I lift them up, I know that my hands aren't holy. But I'm saying it, but they're holy because Christ is holy. And his holiness has been imparted to me, and I'm holy because of what he has done. And so that's how God sees you. You're holy and righteous, sanctified because of what Christ has done, and you believe on that. I like what John Piper said about this. He says, somebody that's sanctified, he says, we spend our time, means that we spend our time becoming what we already are. Do you get that? We we spend our time, our whole focus, I'm sanctified, and my focus is becoming sanctified. It's like I'm on the baseball team already. You can't become more on the baseball team but you can act like you're on the baseball team or whatever the culture of that baseball team is, if that makes sense. I like that. We spend our time becoming what we already are. We're sanctified, but we we spend our time becoming sanctified, pursuing sanctification. That's a life that is focused on growing in our relationship to Christ. And I hope that describes you this morning. Thirdly and lastly, Those who worship like the Magi, they present their treasures to him. And I'm not talking just financial treasures to him. 
What I'm talking about is your entire being, your time, your talents, and your treasures. You recognize that my life is God's life. My time is His time. My talents are, for, are His talents. My treasures are His treasures. Therefore, I give them back to Him so that He may glorify Himself through me. Right? And again, we do this not to earn His favor, because you already have it because of what the Messiah has done for you. You do it out of thankfulness. Or how can I glorify God with my life even more? How can I glorify God even more with my time, my talents, and my treasure? Again, going back to John Piper's quote, we spend our time becoming what we already are. And so those are the three responses that we see this morning to the manifestation of Jesus indifference, hostility, and worship. And so I close with this, asking each and every one of us, every one of us this morning, again, to think about what the, the writer of Hebrews said to examine themselves. How will you respond to the Messiah's manifestation to this world, to your world? Because the Messiah has been manifested to each and every one of us. The question is, how will you respond? Will you remain indifferent toward God? That's one response, as we saw from the religious leaders. And again, I fear that that is the, the one thing that can happen to those people who are within the church, becoming indifferent to God. Because you know all the lingo, you know what you're supposed to do, but it's just lip service. And that's a very real thing. Secondly, uh, Will your response be, or it can be, will you remain hostile towards God? Will you stay put? You're like, I don't care what you say, Robert. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm not giving up my time or my talents, and I'm definitely not giving up my treasures because it's my money to God, right? I'm not giving up anything to him. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm in control of my life, and I'm not giving it up to God. Will you remain in your hostility towards God? Or thirdly, or lastly, and again, I pray this is what each and every one of us will continue to do or resolve to do, is that we will respond with worship. We will worship God with our entire being for what he has done for us. And so in a moment, uh, during the worship time, there's going to be some people up here that would love to pray with anybody this morning. And I, would, again, would encourage you that if God has moved upon your heart and has revealed to you that you have an attitude of indifference or hostility to him, that you would come and confess that and let us pray for you and help you in your walk this year as you determine to worship him. And for the rest of us, we'll just continue to worship God and grow in our sanctification Again, like John Piper said, we spend our time becoming what we already are. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you once again for this time in your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you would move on the hearts of the men and women in this church. Only you and they know where they stand before you. And again, I pray if there's anybody in this room who has an indifferent heart towards you, that they would be moved to repentance and confession, and cry out to you for salvation. I pray the same for those this morning who might have a hostile heart towards you, that they too would 
surrender themselves to you. And make this a year, Lord God, where they determine to worship you. And for the rest of us, Lord God, we thank you so much for your sanctification, your salvation that you've given to us. I pray, Lord God, that we would spend our time uh, just, again, growing into who we already are. Help us, Lord God, today and until your return to glorify you with our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we pray this in the name of your Son, who's been revealed to us as Lord and Savior. Amen.